Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. We've got a special episode of Rewrite Radio for you today, a look back at our first season of the podcast, edited together by John Brown. John is the creative director here at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, and in that capacity, he does a lot of different things, including co-producing Rewrite Radio, along with myself and Amanda Smart. I've convinced him to join me on mic today to talk about this episode and our first year and also how hard it is to work with me. Oh, I'm so glad you're finally admitting it. I have to admit, I'm sitting here telling myself, act like an adult, act like an adult, act like an adult, which is probably bad advice. It's like self-talk. Self- yeah. yeah, yeah. Act like an adult. Um, but thank you for bringing in scones. Really you're welcome. I'm, push me over the edge. I'm happy to bring in scones anytime. Uh, I've got extras, so there you go. Um, so talk about this episode you put together. It's You wouldn't call it like a best of episode, right? How would you describe it? Um, it's more of like a worst of episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new thing we're trying out. Yeah, it's like it's like kind of counterintuitive. Um, we're gonna like go with it and see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's kind of impossible to mm. to do a best of episode. Yeah. Um, we're intimately familiar with these talks. Yeah. Uh, they're also rich. You can't really go through them and be like, that's the best part. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Because they're woven together in a, in a you know, very precious way. Mm-hmm. We we want to be careful with them, at least. Sure. And we have a lot of respect for them. Yeah. This was more sort of an investigation of what we have. Yeah. And not, um, not we weren't necessarily expecting to come away with something. Um, we... I uh, didn't know if it would work necessarily, so uh, it was more of an experiment. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To kind of see, like, okay, we've we launched this podcast just about a year ago, mm-hmm. like at Christmas 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, we launched our first three episodes, and so we thought we, we were talking th- just before Christmas break. This time, we thought, why don't we think about doing a sort of retrospective? Um, and and you kind of sat with that. Um, and from what I hear from our conversations, you kind of you like listened back to all 24 episodes and like a two-day yeah. period maybe yeah. it turned out it'll be a little bit more intense than i expected yeah, exactly and it got pretty heavy i mean like i mean you pulled together this like really beautiful i mean i would call this episode really almost a meditation um on frankly mortality <laughs> um so john do we need to talk like <laughs> <laughs> It definitely was not my goal. <laughs> uh, most of these people are super funny. Brian mm-hmm. Doyle. Yeah, totally. Uh, listen to his whole episode, please. Yes. But as you know, I s- started to go through these talks. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to f- find a little thread, a little um, resonance between them about sort of the power of uh, s- story to mm-hmm. talk to um, some of the, the darker parts of our experience yeah. um and um after like kind of spending a good couple days going mm-hmm. through this and um pulling clips um i was surprised to find how heavy this 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 uh compilation turned into but i i definitely think it's sort of heavy in a good way <laughs> <laughs> no i think that's that's right i think i think that could be a new tagline for the festival mm-hmm. heavy in a mm-hmm. good way <laughs> I mean, when you invite people uh, into conversations at this intersection of literature and belief, you're inviting people into like, the very heart of the human experience. And and I think that's heavy in a good way. <laughs> so yeah, I like and, that. And maybe this particular episode is is sort of a taste of that conversation in a way where like, um, artificially bringing these authors together yeah, in conversation right. yeah, like right. by sort of weaving together exactly. their talks and uh-huh. uh, while it is artificial. <laughs> sure, because these are authors all the way from Beekner in 1992 yeah. to Zadie Smith and, and George Saunders and several others who were here in um, 2016. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah. And they all sort of 
speak to one another. Exactly. Yeah. And that is, um, I think that's at the heart of what the festival is about is conversation and speaking across um, differences to find um, commonality, um, common cause. Well, thank you so much for your work on this first season of Rewrite Radio. Thank you for the scones. (laughs) Of course. And now, a look back at the first season of Rewrite Radio. We'll start with a few words from Frederick Buechner speaking to a full house in 1992. I spend my life, my working life, which is a large large part of my life, moving words around the page. And the more I deal with them, the more I marvel at them. As I say, it's, it's what my life has been for, for many, many years. And I often think when I get, if I get as far as St. Peter's Gate and he says, what have you done with your life? All I can say is I've written a lot of books. I've moved a lot of words around. And if that's not enough, I've had it. That's what my life has been. But they're wonderful things, these words, these sounds you make with your lips, these marks you scratch on the page. And there is so much they can do. They are beautiful, they convey meaning, they tell stories, they move us. But it seems to me that they do something even more basic still. Before they do all those other things, they do something else. And to illustrate that, I wanted to recite for you a haiku. You all know about haiku, those little 17-syllable Japanese poems that when I was teaching school at Exeter were tremendously popular, all the kids who didn't like lots of other things, loved haiku because they were easy to read and remember, and easy to write. Anybody can write a haiku. And the most famous one of all, or so I'm told, is by a, I think, 18th century Japanese poet named Basho, and here is the haiku, and I'm going to read it twice, it's only 17 syllables long. And it goes this way, an old silent pond, into the pond a frog jumps, splash, Silence again. I'm going to read it, I'm going to recite it again. Close your eyes this time. An old silent pond, into the pond a frog jumps, splash. Silence again. And now you can open your eyes. It's obvious that none of the things that I said words most basically do are being done in that poem. The language is not beautiful, could hardly be more commonplace. The words are all almost monosyllabic, not flowery, not poetic. They don't mean anything. The whole point of a haiku is not to mean anything at all, not to be the bearer of anything other than what it is uh, talking about directly. There's no idea of symbolism in a haiku. The frog isn't supposed to stand for one thing and the pond for another thing and so on. It doesn't move us. There's nothing moving particularly about that scene. There's no narrative. All of these things that one usually associates with words are not present, I think, in that particular form. What it does do, and this is what I'm suggesting is the most basic thing, perhaps, that literature does, it puts a frame, a frame around a moment. This most pedestrian moment, you picture Basho, whoever he was, walking along the edge of the old silent pond and startling a frog who leaps into the water and makes this splash, catches his attention for a moment, and then as the sound dies out, silence again. He simply enables us to participate in a moment that without him, without the frame, we would very likely have missed. At least I would very likely have missed it. Perhaps I shouldn't foist this on you. Either I wouldn't have noticed it at all this moment, I'd have been lost in thought. And lost is a good word to hang on to. Lost in thought. Or else I would have noticed it and I would have verbalized it. I would have said, well, I was just a frog jumping into a pond, as if that's all it was, and would have dismissed it. Or I would have thought about it. I would have thought about it. Sickly door. The frog, the sound, the splash, the pond would have made me think of other things. I would have carried a million miles away from the moment itself. What the haiku, it seems to me, is doing and what literature, the art of writing at its most basic, is trying to do is say, stop all of that. 
stop thinking, stop verbalizing, stop departing for the moment into other parts of your interior life and simply see this moment like the frog jumping into the pond in all its shimmering immediacy, its suchness, this moment that otherwise would have been lost forever but for the frame. And it seems to me that What's true of the haiku is true of even the most complex literary forms, whether you're thinking of plays or novels, great, long, complicated novels or poetry. They're all saying basically, pay attention, pay attention. Catherine Patterson, starting with a few lines from Mary Oliver. White owl flies into and out of the field, coming down out of the freezing sky with its depths of light like an angel or a Buddha with wings. It was beautiful and accurate striking the snow and whatever was there with a force that left the imprint of the tips of its wings five feet apart and the grabbing thrust of its feet and the indentation of what had been running through the white valleys of the snow. And then it rose gracefully and flew back to the frozen marshes to lurk there like a little lighthouse in the blue shadows. So I thought, maybe death isn't darkness after all, but so much light wrapping itself around us as soft as feathers that we are instantly weary of looking and looking and shut our eyes, not without amazement, and let ourselves be carried as through the translucence of mica to the river that is without the least dapple of shadow, that is nothing but light, scalding aortal light, in which we are washed and washed out of our bones. I don't think, once having read this poem, I can ever think of death the same way again. What a wonderful, wonderful image, I said to Carl. Yes, he said, that was what I thought. But Gina, who is his wife and our co-pastor said, that's all very well unless you're that little mouse running across the field. But isn't that exactly the point? We are that mouse. We human beings scrabble through life, unseeing, unhearing, and suddenly the owl is swooping down upon us. That, friends, I suggest, is not the time to say to the mouse, never mind, sweetie, it's all part of a grand and beautiful design. (laughs) It is probably not the moment for a sermon at all. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, we are not often supported by argument or consoled by discourse. But we may indeed, we often are comforted by art. I know on September the 11th, a day of fear and terror, I finally had sense enough to turn off the TV and put on the CD of Brahms' German Requiem. But I'm guessing that most of us gathered here tonight don't rate ourselves as a Mary Oliver, much less a Johannes Brahms. I'm a writer for children. What is my role as meaning maker? in a world gone mad. It was a week after September the 11th. We were finally having to give up the last faint hope that Peter, our son John's brother-in-law and close friend, would be found somewhere unconscious in a hospital or wandering senseless in a distant locale. I looked at my calendar and was distressed to see that I was slated to speak to middle school students in Heinsburg, Vermont the next day. What was I going to say to 12 and 13 year olds 
in the midst of this grief and terror that had not only our extended family, but our whole nation in its death grip. Finally, I decided to start by reading them a passage from Bridge to Terabithia, which I had written out of another time of family grief and tumult. <clears throat> that night, as he started to get into bed, leaving the light off so as not to wake the little girls, he was surprised by Maybelle's shrill little, Jess, how come you still awake? Jess, I know where you and Leslie go to hide. What do you mean? I followed you. He was at her bedside in one leap. You ain't supposed to follow me. How come? Her voice was sassy. He grabbed her shoulders and made her look him in the face. She blinked in the dim light like a startled chicken. You listen here, Maybelle Aarons, he whispered fiercely. I catch you following me again. Your life ain't worth nothing. Okay, okay. She slid back into bed. Boy, you're mean. I ought to tell Mama on you. Look, Maybelle, you can't do that. You can't tell Mama about where me and Leslie go. She answered with a little sniffling sound. He grabbed her shoulders again. He was desperate. I mean it, Maybelle. You can't do that. You can't tell nobody nothing. He let her go. Now, I don't want to hear about you following me or squealing to Mama ever again. You hear? Why not? Because if you do, I'm going to tell Billie Jean Edwards you still wet the bed sometimes. You wouldn't. Boy, girl, you just better not try me. He made her swear on the Bible never to tell and never to follow. But still he lay awake a long time. How could he trust everything that mattered to him to a sassy six-year-old? Sometimes it seemed to him that his life was delicate as a dandelion. One little puff in any direction and it was blown to bits. I don't know about you, I said to those children, but I'm feeling a lot like a dandelion today. I could see them visibly relax. Here was an adult willing to tell the truth. We can't make meaning for anyone, much less for the young unless we're first willing to tell them the truth. Brian Doyle. Three of my friends were murdered on September 11th. Tommy Crotty, Farrell Lynch, Sean Lynch. Good boys. Tells you about Irish Catholic New York, right? And, uh, and so I was so enraged and horrified and furious and helpless and speechless and uh, you know and I didn't know what to do I didn't know what to do I didn't know what to do you know all I could do was pray and but even prayers seemed empty and shallow and I was so horrified man and and so I go home and one day I, I was at work and a magazine called me and said we've scrapped our editorial calendar like all the other magazines in the world and we're going to do a special issue on September 11th you know we'd like you to contribute and I said no 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 I will not. There's nothing to say. I'm not adding to the ocean of witless commentary and vengeful prose. You know, I'm going to bow and shut my mouth and pray silently, which is the only eloquent thing to do, as St. Francis says. You know, go thou and preach the gospel. If necessary, use words, says Francis. And so I said, no, there's nothing to do. You know, I was just going to pray. So I'm explaining this at home I'm in the kitchen, explaining this to my poor wife. You know, yay, hi. And I said, no, Mary. <laughs> And uh, so I said, no, because blah, 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 blah. Well, our, our daughter was standing there, and it was probably nine. And, and, and she goes, what are you going to do then? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, Dad, you know, you're always saying, no offense. <laughs> you're always saying if, that, you know, if God gives you a tool and you don't use your tool, that's a sin. And so, you know, Dad, no offense, but you only have one tool. <laughs> 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 you say so yourself. So you're only good at catching and sharing stories. So if you're not going to catch and share any stories, isn't that a sin? Like, go to your room. <laughs> but she was right. She was right. You know, so I ended up writing three stories for my friends. One about the couple who leaped from the tower holding hands. You know that story? There are no, there's no video. There's no film. There's no photograph. There were only 14 people. 
saw with their naked holy eyeballs that a man reached for a woman and a woman reached for a man at the lip of hell. They reached for each other. No one knows who they were. No one knows if they were lovers, friends, colleagues, companions, or if they just met each other there at the abyss, at the edge of the abyss. But they reached for each other. People saw with their eyes. They saw a man and a woman stick out each hand and grab each other's hands and then jump out. You know, they fell so fast, they would have blacked out on the way, thank God, before they hit the ground. The mayor reported, as you remember, the mayor reported that bodies hit the ground so hard there was a pink mist in the air. But I choose to remember not the, the, the idiocy of a man who would murder my friends and murder children. We forget that there were little children who were murdered that day. I choose to remember a man reached for a woman and a woman reached for a man. I choose to remember there was a guy who carried a lady down 50 floors in her wheelchair. 50 floors in her wheelchair, you know? And then he turned around and went back in and didn't come back out. I choose to remember the teacher on the corner of Liberty Street. Liberty Street. I love my country. Liberty Street. Uh, there was a little kindergarten pre-K there, right? And a little boy, a little boy looked up and as the first people were jumping off the towers, the little boy said to his teacher, oh, look, teacher, the birds are on fire. And the teacher picked up that boy and ran down the street as the gathering powerful cloud of ash came for them. She saved that little boy. Mm -hmm. you, know. you can choose to do what you want with stories. And you can use stories as weapons. You can fight back with stories. You, know? you can fight back with stories. You know? Patricia and Alana Raybon, authors of Undivided, A Muslim Daughter, Her Christian Mother, Their Path to Peace. I was in my dorm room and just waiting for the time to talk to her. I had called other people that were in my life at that time, other people who were also going through something similar to, to me. You know, growing up as an African-American, um, I was very familiar with the Nation of Islam just from the, the narrative about civil rights. And so I had first started through that pathway um, and I was drawn to just a more traditional view of Islam. And so I just kind of decided to go completely Orthodox, and so I just called her up and I said, "Mom, I've decided to come, you know, to just practice, you know, mainstream Islam." Um, and that was basically it. The conversation just kind of was quiet on her end. <laughs> it was a bit, it was a little awkward actually, <laughs> but I was relieved on my end because I didn't really want to talk about it. <laughs> I just wanted to tell her and get that over with. Um, so we just basically hung up. And I went, went, went on with my life. I didn't realize, though, that I had just completely told her some really, really major news that was very devastating. <laughs> I don't think I realized the impact it would have on our relationship. Well, we became um, a family like many families um, in that um, we looked cohesive, but we were not talking and speaking about things that needed to be said. And so we could sit around a Thanksgiving table and, um, and have all the, the right foods and, and say all the right things, except we're not saying the thing that's tearing everybody apart. The uh, sadness of that became for me a place of mourning. I was looking last night um, again at the um, Kubler-Ross stages of grief, and um, I went through all of them. Um, the first one's denial, and then there's anger. Um, so Ilana called, you know, I just, I think I said something like, oh, uh, thanks for calling. How's your car running? You know? <laughs> She had Dan, my husband had bought her a, a used Honda. She drove up to campus. And 
So I had, you know, the stages are uh, denial and then anger. And I was angry, um, my friends, because um, life is hard anyway. As as an African-American, I had already um, spent so much of my life working through um, the challenge of being different in the world and you know, I'd, I'd written a book about it and, you know, talked about it. And, um, and then Alana calls and says, and I'm, I'm going to be a Muslim. And I just remember, like, I don't, dear God, this was not on the list. <laughs> I don't want, um, and so um, that third stage in that Cooper ross um, dynamic is bargaining. You know, if I can... Um, what can I do to reconfigure, bring my family back together? But there was no, there wasn't anything I could do. And so that fourth of the five stages is depression. And I was, I was very sad. I, I, um, I did, I, you know, I dragged myself through the mall looking at Christmas toys and, or Easter dresses or whatever, you know, and just piling it on. Oh, I can't, oh, 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 woe is me. And, um, and then finally you get to acceptance. And I, I said that all in about a, a minute, but I'll tell you that it took a long, long time. <laughs> well, the interesting, the interesting part of this, Mom, is that mm-hmm. I'm just learning this about you now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew you were sad, but I had no idea there were so many layers to it. Yeah. And um, so... You know, I guess what I'd like to share with everyone here is just, there was a point when we were writing the book where I started to feel really guilty because I did learn that she was so grief-stricken and I just felt so bad. I felt really responsible. And I took it on, upon myself and I you know, was thinking, gosh, look what I have done to her. Um, it, really, it really hit me hard. It was a moment where I finally realized that parents have feelings <laughs> and that um and 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 that was you know that was really huge for me I just I felt really guilty for a while and um I didn't really know how to process that but I kind of started by um you know letting her know that I cared that cared about how she was feeling mm-hmm. and that I wasn't going to let her think that I just um you know, that it wasn't important to me. But, um, but yes, the process did take a long time, and I, and I think we both went through it. I went through a, a period of denial as well, or maybe stubbornness. Like, I was very honorary. I just felt like, you know, I, this is my right, and, and you don't really have a say in it, and how dare you make me feel bad for choosing something different. Um, I went through a lot of that. Then I went through, well, now I have to prove to you why I think what I'm doing is right. And that was probably, now looking back, the most naive stage that I went through. I'm, you, know, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that. I was, you know, looking through verses and trying to prove to her and all of this ridiculousness. And then, you know, and then I kind of decided to just step back from it all, and I was in complete avoidance mode. Um, and my husband is very, he, he doesn't like to small talk, and so when they would come over, he would bring up some, like, political topic, and then they would get into, like, the religious nature of it, and I would just, like, leave the room. <laughs> like, I am not even going to go there. And so I went through a lot of just, I don't even want to be around it, I don't want to discuss it, I'm just going to live my life. But the awkwardness of it was... You know, for people of faith, and I'm sure many people in here can agree, you can't be a person of faith and not express your faith in many parts of your life. So, you know, with prayer or with other things we were doing, there was this awkwardness because I was doing these things in front of her. And so I was always looking over at her, what is she thinking right now while I'm praying or what, you know. Um, if they were there during Ramadan, you know, that was very awkward and it was so uncomfortable. Um, so it really took me a while to get to a point where I was ready to talk to her about it without the anger and the, you know, trying to point fingers and trying to prove that she was wrong. 
It took about 10 years. Alana <laughs> <laughs> and I discovered that um, peace, peacemaking, is not this destination you get to and then everything's fixed. It's a choice. Peace is a choice. And you get up every day and choose to get along with the people in your, um, in this circle that, that God has given you. And um, sometimes you um, make mistakes, but then you, you know you can get back to it the next day and try again. I could get stuck in the weeds of that theological debate. Or I could love my family. And that's where I sit. <laughs> Ashley Bryan. One of the most tragic experiences in life is the death of a child. So never let the child within you die. The one thing we all have in common is we have survived childhood. And if I can remind you of that experience of adventure and excitement and of trying, of going beyond the, the formality of who you think you are, I can get a, a back-and-forth play. George Saunders. We live a short time. Uh, I've chosen this art form. Yeah. Let's get out on the perimeter and see what it can do. It might be that the kind of moral cul-de-sacs and difficulties we get into in our particular time will not be rattled by conventional realist narrative. In other words, there are things happening in contemporary uh, classical music that are so strange and percussive and weird, but they produce very strong emotions that couldn't be produced by the classical toolbox. So in that model, as you said, the weirdness is, is a means to the old classical end of trying to understand what we're doing on the planet. Yeah. Ashley Bryan. I live on poetry, the spirituals, mm -hmm. <laughs> the art of the world. Uh, that's at the heart of being human because you have no answer. And art seems to make you try to draw a closer understanding, you know, who you are and what is this effort that you are exuding to try to make something of uh, just to go beyond what is given. I try to break down what, who I am as an artist, and you as a painter, you as a, as a carpenter, you as a ditch digger. I try to break that down. I tell everyone, you cannot resist being creators, transformers. You are dealing with materials that you must do something with to make it other than what it is. When people think, as an artist, I take a blank surface and I start painting uh, images on it, I'm transforming a blank surface. But I tell my friend when she's talking with me, I say, look, you have potatoes and a meat and a vegetable, and if you don't do something to transform those, you don't have a dinner. You can't avoid transforming the material, anything you do, and making it something. For you to walk into this room, you have to transform a distance, the space you've walked to get into here. The act of making something other, getting somewhere else with what you have at hand, is universal. You can give it all kinds of names, but that's the essence of who we are, that universality of transforming whatever is at hand, you see. I am saying words, and Ari is saying words, if you're not transforming them in some form of understanding on your own terms, no two of you are doing the same thing. That effort, that, that desire to make it so that it means something to you is personal and original. Barbara Brown Taylor. I meant to wear bohemian clothes and sleep in garrets. I meant to live large and push, push language to its limits, describing things that few people saw. Instead, I ended up with a closet full of black suits. You still see the remnants. 
and clergy shirts, learning how to write 12-minute Sunday sermons that might mean something to the children present as well as to the adults. My present shorthand for the tension I feel is the tension between what I am calling the language of belief on the one hand and the language of beholding on the other. The language of belief being language devoted to what is right and the language of beholding being devoted to what is. In my lexicon, at least, the language of beholding calls me to full attention to real life on earth, not just mine, but the real lives of other people as well, along with the lives of nations and oceans and creatures and trees, and to describe their reality, to be as faithful to their reality as I can, even when that is strange or frightening to me, even when it causes me all kinds of ideological problems. When I am in service to the language of beholding, my primary responsibility is to what is. Zadie Smith reading an excerpt from her book on beauty. The second picture, on the other hand, makes Katie cry. It is seated nude, an etching from 1631. In it, a misshapen woman, naked, with tubby little breasts and a hugely distended belly, sits on a rock, eyeing Katie directly. Katie has read some famous commentaries on this etching. Everybody finds it technically good, but visually disgusting. Many famous men are repulsed. A simple naked woman is apparently much more nauseating than Samson having his eye put out or Ganymede pissing everywhere. Was she really so grotesque? She was a shock to Katie at first, like a starkly lit, unforgiving photograph of oneself. But then Katie began to notice all the exterior human information, not explicitly in the frame, but implied by what we see there. Katie is moved by the crenulated marks of absent stockings on her legs, the muscles in her arms suggestive of manual labor, that loose belly that has known many babies, that still fresh face that has lured men in the past and may yet lure more. Katie, a string bean physically, can even see her own body contained in this body as if Rembrandt was saying to her and to all women, for you are of the earth as my nude is and you will come to this point too and be blessed if you feel as little shame, as much joy as she. This is what a woman is, unadorned after children and work and age and experience. These are the marks of living, so Katie feels. And all this from cross-hatching, Katie makes her own comics and knows something of cross-hatching. All these intimations of mortality from an ink pot. Oh, that's not here. It's nice. <laughs> I haven't read it in ages. It's quite good, isn't yeah, it? It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Zadie Smith, interviewed by Jane Zwart. In a, in a very childlike way, my instinct as a, as a kid, and it remains, is that, that these various texts are interpretive works of philosophy. They, they have something to say about what it is to be in the world. To me, um, the texts of Islam are about submission in a really interesting way. Submission is one part of human life, should be. Um, the New Testament with its insistence on um, uh, the sin that happens inside, mm -hmm. even before it's acted upon, is another aspect of life I find very interesting. The Old Testament with its um, emphasis on the law. These all seem to me aspects of human experience. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I, I take them as seriously as when I'm reading Kierkegaard or if I read Plato. I, to me, these are writings, writings on the nature of what it is to be in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that is probably not enough for most seriously religious people, but that's my experience of them. Yeah. I like that picture that Graham Greene gives of a kind of extreme Catholicism where even when people think, he says, even when my characters think they're sinning against God, they're mistaken, they try, but they can't even get there. And that to me is a more interesting, his Catholicism is really interesting to me because it lives in uncertainty. You cannot know God, you cannot know even when you're truly disapproving him. 
uh, you're sorry, he is disapproving of you. Your knowledge of him is so minute, really, mm -hmm. and so partial. Um, so that re religious people in green come off quite badly, formally religious, in the sense of people who think they know the rules of the game, their relation to God, who's being punished, who's not being punished. He, he is, he's wary of those people. Mm -hmm. But it's out of respect for a God who is larger than, than their arguments. Um, that, that vision attracts me. But yes, any, anything which condemns you know, throws the stone at the, at the house next door is, is my issue. Mm -hmm. my, my main and closest religious feeling is one expressed by Iris Murdoch about the good, that the good is God, and that the, the knowledge of it, the fact that we can even speak of it as a concept, is the evidence of God. Mm -hmm. That's as close as I've ever come. And I, I don't find that to be even a kind of a statement of belief. It seems to me evidently true that the good is God in the, in the world, and anywhere it's practiced, acted upon, remembered in moments of um, you know, danger or horror. I, I don't see what else God could be but that. And that, that existence of goodness in people as an idea, as a kind of almost force in the world, that, that's the thing that I believe, quote unquote believe in. Mm -hmm. I don't think, for instance, like the behavioral Psychologists, that good is just a way of, um, it's a kind of a way of protecting yourself so that we don't stampede in the crowd because we know if that person stampedes, I also get killed. It's like a kind of defensive mode. Mm -hmm. I don't think that covers half of the um, evidence you see of good in the world. Hmm. Thank you. Tobias Wolf. I wish I had more to say about spiritual practice. I. Uh, I, for me, I guess the, my, my spiritual practice is to try to, uh, to treat other people as I would wish to be treated and to think of them as, as real as myself. And that is for me what uh, literature did for me when I was young that nothing ever else ever did quite and that it continues to do is I think that most of us without uh, any, any uh, ill intention walk around in a, in a kind of shell of self-absorption and self-concern and there's something about literature that wakes me up to the absolute adamant reality of other human beings and once you apprehend that and refresh your apprehension of that that is, I mean that is, that is the basic thing we have to know uh, is, is first of all, it, it makes a demand on us, of course, but it also makes us realize we're not alone. Frederick Buechner. The world is a manger in which God is continually being born in one form or another. But we're so apt to be lost in thought, looking somewhere else. I love God, pay attention, watch, listen, wait for, and love each other, Jesus says. Love your neighbor. You have to see them to love them. You have to see them to love them. It's hard to love somebody you can't see. See their faces. See the way they walk down the street. See the way their shoulders slump when they're tired then maybe you can love them. And then the reverse, almost. It is in loving them that we come really to see them. And so often we don't see people very well until something happens that makes us see them. Kelly Brown Douglas. The date was February 26, 2012. It was a Sunday evening in Sanford, Florida. It was a rainy evening. 17-year-old Trayvon Benjamin Martin, who lived in Miami Gardens, Florida, with his mother, was visiting his father. 
Trayvon was walking back to a Sanford residence from a store where he had just purchased a can of iced tea and a pack of Skittles candy. Trayvon was wearing a hoodie. The neighborhood watch captain spotted Trayvon. He called 911 to report a suspicious person in the gated neighborhood. The 911 operator advised the caller to remain in his car, not to follow the person, and police would be there. The watch captain did not follow instructions. Armed with a gun, he left his car. Shortly thereafter, shots were fired and Trayvon was left dead on the Florida sidewalk. Trayvon was African-American. The watch captain was not. Trayvon possessed iced tea and Skittles. The watch captain possessed a gun. Trayvon's body was taken to a morgue. The watch captain was freed to go home. The next day, Tracy Martin identified his son's lifeless body from a photo. The watch captain was not charged with the crime. The killer was seemingly protected under Florida Stand Your Ground law. Almost two months later, after black communities across the country launched protest rallies calling for the arrest of the watch captain, he was finally arrested and charged. However, he claimed he killed Trayvon in self-defense. A year and a half later, on Saturday night, July 13, 2013, a six-woman jury found Trayvon's killer not guilty. They acquitted him of both second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. He was a free man. The only person seemingly responsible for Trayvon's slaying was Trayvon himself. The story of Trayvon Martin was an all-too-familiar story in the black community. It was eerily, eerily reminiscent of the 1955 lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till, which also garnered national attention. Emmett was brutally murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman in a convenience store. Like Trayvon's killer, Emmett's killer was, not found, was found not guilty. The only person held responsible for Emmett's death was Emmett. And so it was that the story of Trayvon would go down in history as that of another young black male killed for no other reason than the fact of his blackness being perceived as threatening with his killer getting away with it. For many young black women and men coming of age some 50 years after the civil rights era and during the time of a black president, they faced this shock as they came to grips with what happened to Trayvon. They wondered if the if the, their lives, if the lives of black children mattered. It surely did not seem like it. If, as Anselm says, theology is faith-seeking understanding, and I believe it is, then as a theologian, the succession of young black people being killed pricked my faith. How was I to understand the justice of God in the midst of these unjust slayings? What was the meaning of God's love in a world of racist hate? What was the meaning of the resurrection in a world that continued to crucify our sons and daughters? I must say that the chapter on the cross and resurrection became what I call finding uh, Jesus and Trayvon, became one of the most difficult to write as I contemplated the very meaning, not of these children's deaths, but of their life and hence the meaning of the crucifixion and resurrection. For as I wrote it, it became clear to me that their deaths were nothing less than 21st century lynchings and thus 21st century crucifixions. Yet the meaning of their lives were not to be found in their unjust, ignominious deaths. And so inasmuch as we must see the face of the crucified Christ in the faces of the Trayvons and Freddies of our world, we must also see the power of the resurrection in their parents' testimonies as they attempt to restore meaning to their children's lives beyond their crucifying deaths and the crucifying portraits of them in the media. Which brings me to writing the conclusion of this chapter. I remember clearly not knowing how to end it. And so after several false attempts one afternoon that just did not feel right to me, I resolved simply to go to bed and start all over the next day. And then in the middle of the night, I was awakened by this refrain in my head that kept saying, end with telling the stories of those children's lives. End with telling the stories of those children's lives. And so I woke up. And I immediately jumped out of bed and combed the internet for their obituaries and any other testimonies 
that I could find of their lives for which to end this chapter. For this was the resurrected, resurrection end. It ended with their lives, not with their deaths. That's what the resurrection is all about, that your life is not defined by crucifying realities. And it was not defined by their crucifying death. They weren't meant to be crucified. They were meant to live. And so needless to say, that was a very, I wrote that through tears. But I ended it with this, this brief paragraph. God is in control, Sabrina Fulton said, Trayvon's mother, and so God is. Left for each of us is to act like it, and thus to be where God is, standing up to stand your ground culture so that our sons and daughters might live. This book is my refusal to be consoled until the justice that is God's is made real in the world. And I'll end there. Many thanks to all the wonderful writers who allowed us to share their festival talks with you on this first season of Rewrite Radio. You can see a list of all the writers featured today in this episode's description. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, Peter Ford, Gwyneth Finley, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deborah Reenstra, Sarah Turnage, Chloe Sellis, Isabel Sellis, Deborah Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. You can also follow the festival on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you like Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show, and we're grateful for your help to bring more people into conversations about literature and belief. Thanks again for listening to the first season of Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockerell. We'll be back soon with season two and more from the Festival of Faith and Writing archives. <laughs>